Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Life Church Bible Study Online. We hope you are encouraged, challenged, and most of all, we hope it brings you closer to Jesus. Let's enjoy the study together. Hey, everybody. Today we're back to our first John Bible study. Um, I'm going to be going over chapter 5. Uh, I hope the Lord speaks to you through it. My intention is to go more or less verse by verse, break it down a little bit. Every once in a while I'll hit a couple verses at a time. And just kind of see what John was trying to say. It's the last chapter in, in the first uh, letter. And so we're going to kind of close it out. There's a bit of a conclusion at the end. And hopefully what God gave me, I can express it well enough that you guys can understand. And then he gives you something else through it too. So we'll jump right in and start at first, the first verse. It says, and I'm in the New Living Translation. Feel free to go back and forth. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. On the surface, a lot of the first part of this chapter seems almost common sense for anyone who's ever been in the church for a long amount of time, but I think he's doing that on purpose. I think he's try- like saying, I'm going to lay it out for you very clearly. You can't argue. You can't complain. We're going to start at the, start at the basics. Fifth chapter of the book, but we're going to start hit some basics right here. And what he's saying in chapter 1, everyone who believes, or verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. Salvation 101. Believe that Jesus is the Christ and you become a child of God. So all it takes for us, for God to adopt us as his child, is to say, Jesus, I believe that you're the Christ and I accept you. And for us, 2,000 years later, we've heard it a million times. But at the time, that's still new stuff. That's still, there's still this huge Jewish majority saying, we're waiting on a Messiah. And so this is John saying, look, Jesus is that Messiah. And if you want God to adopt you as his child, you just have to believe that and receive that. And the second part of that verse is really powerful. And it says, And everyone who loves the Father loves his children. So by default, when we receive Jesus and we say, God, send your spirit to live in me, a direct byproduct of that is that we love others. And that's a mirror of Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, when it says you will know them by their fruits. That whenever we receive and believe in Jesus, we love each other. And that's what people will see. It's not about saying it. It's about what you do and how you act and show who Jesus is in your life. We'll move on to verse 2. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey His commandments. So this is just a continuation of the same thing. That if we do what God tells us to do, the result will be loving others. Because God is love. It says, and I have a note here, it says, Following following God's commands will always lead to loving others. If it's not love, it isn't from God. And it's that simple. All of His instructions result in the love and the respect of others. If you go down the list of the Ten Commandments, it's about loving God and loving and respecting others. It's 
don't do these wrong things because these are the things that hurt people or do these right things because they glorify God and they lift each other up. So all of God's instruction, and that's mirrored again in what Je all the commands Jesus give. Love your neighbor. It's all about loving others and caring for others and honoring God. God is love. Verse 3 says, loving God, oh, sorry, moving on. Yeah, loving God means keeping his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Once again, it's not difficult. It's not always easy, but it's not a difficult concept in that we demonstrate our love for God by following his commands. His rules are easy and they're common sense. It doesn't take a huge amount of depth of understanding to say, honor God, love each other, respect each other, and put yourself second. The third, God first, other second. So verses two and three combined is just telling us that if we do, if we say we love God, then we do what God commands, and the result of that is loving others. Verse four and five, I'm going to kind of run together because five reinforces four. It says, for every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So verse four says, for every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. So we're victorious, but it's not through our power, it's through our faith in God's power. So when it says we defeat this evil world, it simply means that we're on the winning side. I didn't do anything to defeat the evil world. God did it, and I'm on God's side because he's adopted me, going back to the first verse, because I've received Jesus. So he's building on himself here and saying that if you're receiving Jesus, if you're following God's commands, if you're loving others, then you have this victory. And then verse 5, and who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So going back, once again, going back to the first verse and saying, the victory is for anyone who believes in God. And that the victory is God's and we just get to enjoy it. Look at it this way. It's, it's great. Imagine you having to go to work and you walk into work, they give you the paycheck, you go home and you never have to work. You're still the, you still get all the benefits of being the employed, but you don't have to do any of the work. That's what's happening here. We get all the benefits of this victory, and we don't have to do any of the work. We just have to have faith that God's going to do the work, and then we get to reap the reward. We get to celebrate the victory. For me, John is laying this out in a very appealing way for people who are reading this, whether it's non-believers or, or young believers, and saying that, look, all you have to do is believe, and if you believe, the byproduct of that is loving others, and the, the result of all this is victory over an evil world. Because if, if you could convince everyone in the world, and we all know this, if you can convince everyone in the world to love God, to respect each other, then the evil in the world dies, and victory is to the the king. So we'll, we'll move on. Um, I'm going to do the same with verses 6 and 7 that I did with 5 and 6. And there's a little bit of a break here. It kind of changes directions just a little bit. 
But what he starts doing in verses 6 and 7 is he starts giving um, historical reference and some fa uh, fact and some support for Jesus as the Messiah. Because at the time, the Jewish culture did not receive him as that. So, verse 6 is, Jesus was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And all three agree. And I lumped eight in there too on that, just to finish verse seven's thought. So, this is where John starts saying, Jesus is Messiah and here's why. So, verse six. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the Spirit, who is truth, confirms it with his testimony. And so, different commentaries kind of have different perspective. In the original Greek, it just says by blood and water, so not by baptism in water. So, there are some commentaries who are referenced to say that both of those things are referencing the cross when Jesus is pierced. It says the blood and the water flowed. But most commentaries that I found, and I think it makes the most sense, and it's what the Spirit spoke to me, was that it was about the water baptism. And clearly, the New Living Translation, the translator felt the same way. Um, in his water baptism, and uh, one of the commentaries referenced that in each of these three situations, God directly reacted. So it's God speaking at Jesus' baptism, it's the veil being torn and the, the sky growing dark during the crucifixion. And then the internal Holy Spirit during Pentecost of the... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where the Spirit would, would work on them and tell them and confirm to them that Jesus was the Messiah. So... These three things are witnesses to Jesus' Christhood. And so, verse 7, it reiterates the same thing in 8. So we have these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And all three agree. And it was very common practice at the time that you had to have witnesses for something to be true. You couldn't just take one person's word for it. You had to have others vouch for it. And that's what John is saying here, is that God sent us three witnesses, three examples of his confirmation that Jesus is Christ. And so John's saying, get it through your heads, people. He's, Jesus is the Messiah. And through him, going all the way back to the beginning of the letter, you'll receive your salvation and you'll be adopted into the kingdom. So this entire first eight verses is telling people, this is what Christ does for you, this is how we should live once we receive him, and this is why you should do it, because God's proven he's the Messiah. So we'll move on to verse 9. It says, Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God, and God has testified about his Son. So continuing the facts and the witnesses that he was mentioning in the previous three verses, He's saying, if we'll believe what people say, and Lord knows we're willing to believe what people say, why are we so stubborn to listen to what God says? 
this verse hit me hard because I will take somebody's word for just about anything. I think social media is proof that people will believe anything that someone says. When the truth is, if we're willing to do that, then exponentially more so we should be willing to believe what God says. And John's saying, God said that Christ is the Messiah because he confirmed it these three times with these three witnesses. So we should believe that. So John is continuing to harp and harp and harp for good reason on the fact that, guys, Jesus is the Messiah. This is it. This is the one we waited for. This is all the prophecy fulfilled. Get it to your heads. Jesus is the Messiah. And all you have to do, he made it so easy, is believe him. Believe that he's the Messiah. Have faith that the spirit that was in him can now live in us and we can move forward. Verse 10 says, All who believe in the Son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe what God has testified about his Son. I think this is John kind of, I don't want to say jabbing at people, but throwing a bit of the guilt trip in there and saying, hey, look, if you don't believe it, you're calling God a liar because God's given you these witnesses and these testimonies. God's given you proof. And if you're choosing not to listen and you're choosing to say otherwise, you're calling God a liar. And I think that's a very bold statement of him to make, but I think he's saying it to make people think and process and say, hey, look, maybe there's something here. There is something here because he's got all these facts to back it up. John was not a dumb man. Very intelligent. And you can see it by the way he writes and by the, the process he uses to prove himself is he continues to give support for everything he says because he knows that what he's saying is true and he knows that he can share that with others. So he's using a very, um, I want to say scientific, but a very uh, educated, structured method here of giving what people would consider his opinion, but then backing it up with facts to support it. And so, and he's saying, now, look, I've given you this information. If you don't want to listen, you're calling God a liar because I'm not saying this. God has said this. Verse 11, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life and this life in his son. So once you get all that through your heads, God has said this, but what you get from it is eternal life and that Jesus is the cause of that. Whoever, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. So, it's this dichotomy that Jesus is life, without it is death. And he hits on that again later, um, and we'll get to that there. But, but remember that verse, that Jesus is life, and without it is death. So, chapter or verse 13 keep wanting to say chapter. Verse 13, he starts his, as the New Living Translation says, his conclusion. So the last eight verses or so is him closing out the book and just trying to give another compact set of thoughts for people to go with from the end of the letter. It says, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. 
So once again, he's repeating himself. So verse 13 is the, uh, just another way of rephrasing what he said in verse 12, that with, with Jesus, there's life. And that if you guys believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. And he doesn't want people to feel like they don't. In verse 14, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. In this verse, like the first time I read through this, this verse, I kind of read it in passing. Like it didn't register what he was saying. And it's kind of tucked in here where it can be easily overlooked that it's just, guys, I want you to know that believing the Son of God gives you eternal life and that he hears you when you pray. And, and saying it passively, it, it doesn't have a whole lot of power or authority in it. And it doesn't have a whole lot of depth to it. But the Lord made me come back and meditate on the scripture a little bit. And then whenever he gave me some clarity on it, like it kind of shook me a little bit. And it says, And we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. I know that a lot of times we, we pray selfish prayers. So we pray for what we want, not for what God wants through us. And that's, I'm extremely guilty of this. And the Lord convicted me through this scripture. And he says, what you really need to learn is that when you walk with me and you, you, you live a life that I'm calling of you, that what you want, your mind and your heart will transition so that what you want is what I also want. And so the Lord told me that you need to be seeking me and following me and I'll change your desires to match my desires for the world. And so that's what John is saying here. It's not that he hears you when you pray for good things. It's that as you grow and live the life with, through Jesus, with God and the Spirit, that your prayers and your prayer mindset and your desires will change, will change to be the desires and, and actions that God wants to begin with. So then we're not praying for something and hoping God listens. It's we're praying for things knowing that God's going to move because we're praying for things that God wants. And so once I realized that, it's kind of made me change up the way I pray because it's like, God, it's not just, will you do this? It's God, help me understand what you're going to do so that I can help facilitate that and, and do the work that you want. And that help me to want what you want, God. That way, the result honors you. And so that, that verse, like I encourage you guys to go through and pray over that verse and say, God, help me to learn to pray for things that you want. Help me to learn to pray with the mindset of God do what you will have done and help me to understand and be the part of it that you want me to be a part of. So verse 15 says, and since we know he hears us when we make our requests, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. So right there he's saying that if we pray and, and build a prayer life that honors God and pursues God what God wants in our life, He's going to answer us, and we have faith that He will, because God listens. God answers prayers of godly people. That it's through our faith in God that these that miracles happen. That that God does all these wonderful things. 
So verse 16 and 17, I'm going to preface this with there's, there's multiple viewpoints, and I'm going to touch on all of them a little bit. Um, the commentary is very widely on these couple of scripture. Um, and I'll, I'll, like I said, I'll touch on all those, and then I'll, I'll share with you guys what the God gave me through my research. And it says, if you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give that person life. But there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. All wicked actions are sin, but not every sin leads to death. So, here's a couple of viewpoints. The, the initial one, when I read this, well, initially when I read this, I was shocked. I was like, what is he saying? That we shouldn't pray for people who are sinning? That we shouldn't, like, pray for others to have a realization in a God moment where they can come to God and be forgiven? Like, should we, are there a point of no return? And I don't think that's what God, what John's saying here. Um, some commentaries are referencing that the sin that leads to death and that you shouldn't pray for those who commit it, the second part of verse 16, is referring to um, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. And, and while I definitely think that is a potential interpretation, because I, I do think there's danger there and that it is a point. He's talking to Christians and or young believers here. So I don't, I personally don't feel that that's the interpretation that lines up with what the Spirit was telling me. One of the interpretations I read, and this is the one that kind of stuck with me. It says, if you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. So reading to that, is people who are alive in the world not doing the right thing. And it says, but there is a sin that leads to death, and I'm not saying you should pray for those who commit it. So it's a, it was a practice at the time, and it's still a practice today in some places, that people will pray for the salvation of people who've already died. So the sin that has already led to death, you can't pray for the people who've committed that because they've died and they've made their choice. So what we should be doing is you should... is if you see a fellow believer sinning in a way that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give that person life. So we should be praying for each other who are alive and maybe making wrong choices because there's still opportunity for them to align themselves with God, to, to have that realization because they are still alive. They haven't committed sin or made choices that have gotten themselves killed. So let's pursue them in prayer and faith and say, God, Help open these people's eyes so that they can believe in you and that they can be saved. So I think John is saying, focus on the people who are around you who can still be saved. Because people who have made their choice and have died, that was the result has already been made. So I encourage you to research those scriptures if you're curious about that. Because there's a lot... Lot, lot of information on it. And it took me a while to kind of go through it and a lot of prayer for God to give me peace. Um, and so I encourage you guys to do the same. So we'll move on to verse 18. It says, We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning, for God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. So God's people try to avoid sin because we know God holds and protects us. We know it's not God's will. So he doesn't say they don't sin. 
but it does say they don't make a practice of sinning. It's, it's not about the, you're not going to be perfect. We don't have to be perfect. John's not saying you have to be perfect. But what he is saying is we know that we're not going to make a practice of it. Is that we're going to do our best, and when we do make a mistake, we pursue forgiveness, we give forgiveness if necessary, and then we seek repentance, and then we learn from it, and try to grow out of it, and let God pull us out of it, because typically we, we ain't going to dig ourselves out. And so we go from there. Verse 19 is we know, oh it says, and practice of saying, for God's son holds them securely and the evil one cannot touch them. We're protected. That God protects our spirit, protects our soul, protects us to the f- fact that if we do make a mistake, God still got our back as long as we seek our repentance. So verse 19 It says, we know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. And at at the time that we're making this video, it's very evident that the enemy is control of a lot of the world. It's scary out there sometimes. But we have faith that we're children of God and that he's under control of our lives. Even if everything around us doesn't seem like it's under God's control, that's not what it's about. God has the authority. And that when we give him, when we submit our lives to that authority, he's under control. Even if everything around us seems like chaos, God is under control. In verse 20, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us understanding, so that we can know the true God. Jesus leads us to God and facilitates life with God. And we know that the Son of God has come, And he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. Jesus was the example. Jesus gave us the model. And and John is saying, look, do what Jesus did, and God's there. Jesus gave us the model, and then when he died, he gave us the forgiveness. And then the last verse Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. I think that's, I mean, what a final thought. It, and it, everything else has kind of built on something else in the, the chapter. But this final thought, to me, it feels like a P.S. Hey, guys, one more thing. Last verse. Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. And, and literally my note is, avoid things that displace God in your heart. Like, this is probably the most straightforward scripture in this entire chapter. And that's to me, like I said, well, it feels like a P.S. Like I see at the bottom, I see John's big signature across the bottom. Hey, guys, sincerely. And then below that, you have P.S. Look, avoid anything that's going to take God away from your heart. Just, just don't do it. And so I almost laugh when I think about that because... It, it's such an independent thought, but it's so valuable. And, and he gives a whole lot more information in one sentence to tack on the back of this chapter and to finish this letter. So I, I hope you guys got something from this. I hope you learned, and I encourage you to, to read back through it, research it, and, uh, 
and, and follow God and know that Jesus is the, the way and that He is the Christ and that God confirms it and that through that we have eternal life and we can bless others in the kingdom.